Welcome to Music History Monday for May 31st, 2021. I'm Bob Greenberg, and the title for today's podcast is Haydn's Death and His Final Road Trip. If you haven't already, please consider joining me on my subscription site at patreon.com slash robertgreenbergmusic, where I blog, vlog, podcast, pontificate, review, and bloviate four to six times a week. We mark the death on May 31, 1809, 212 years ago today, of the incomparable Josef Haydn at his home in Vienna at Kleine Steingasse 73. Today, the address is Haydngasse 19. At the time of his death, he was 77 years old and was, without any doubt, the most popular and beloved composer in the Western world. Franz Josef Haydn was born on March 31, 1732, in the Austrian town of Rohrau. He was as self-made a person as any we'll ever meet. A choir boy at St. Stephen's Cathedral in Vienna, he was booted out onto the mean streets of Vienna when his voice changed at the age of 16 and left entirely to his own devices. He subsisted in a Viennese garret, giving lessons and playing the violin in dance bands while he taught himself to compose. To indulge the cliché, the young dude attended the School of Hard Knocks and managed to graduate summa cum laude. He slowly climbed the Viennese musical ladder and in 1761, at the age of 29, took up a position with the Esterhazy family, a fabulously wealthy family of Hungarian nobles. His position was that of Vice Kapellmeister, assistant music director of the Esterhazy musical establishment. Assistant or no, Haydn directed most of the musical activities for the court, as the elderly Kapellmeister, Gregor Varner, was responsible only for the court's church music. Varner died in 1766, at which point Haydn was promoted to the top spot, Kapellmeister. He remained the Esterhazy Kapellmeister until 1790. It was while working for the Esterhazys, and still in his thirties, that Haydn was given the nickname of Papa by the grateful musicians who worked for him. They called him Papa not because he was old or conservative, but because he was a good kind and fair-minded boss who made the needs of his musicians a top priority. But more than just a good man, the short, hook-nosed, pockmarked, ever-smiling, ever-genial Haydn also turned out to be one of the most stunningly original and exquisitely talented composers to ever grace our planet. For all intents and purposes, Haydn did indeed invent what today we consider the genres of string quartet, of which he composed 68, and symphony, of which he composed at least 104. But even more than that, Haydn's personal musical voice, his personal musical style, his particular blend of humor and seriousness, of intellect and emotion, has come to be known by the generic designation as the Viennese classical style. It is a tribute to the originality, technical brilliance, and sheer number of Haydn's compositions that they were and remain 
the standard by which we measure all the other music of his time. He was a man of great physical energy and endless curiosity, although when he left the full-time employ of the Esterhazy family in 1790, it was assumed that the 58-year-old Haydn, no spring chicken by the standards of the day, would take a quiet retirement. Not a chance. What followed were the best and most creative years of his life. His two extended trips to England between 1791 and 1795, where he composed his final 12 symphonies, then back to Vienna where he composed his last string quartets, a series of masses, and saving the best for last, his oratorios, The Creation of 1798, and The Seasons of 1801. It was after the public premiere of The Seasons at Vienna's Redutenzaal on May 19, 1801, that the now 69-year-old Haydn's clock finally began to run down. Haydn admitted so much, saying, quote, The Seasons has finished me off, unquote. Almost immediately after the premiere of The Seasons, Haydn had a relapse of rheumatic fever, the same disease that had killed Mozart. He was fried. And between May and December of 1801, he wrote out his will. Retirement, 1801 to 1809. Haydn's last will and testament is a remarkable document, not because it tells us how wealthy he was, he did in fact accumulate a sizable estate, but rather it's remarkable for the generosity it displays. Even though Haydn had left his hometown of Rorau at the age of five, never to live there again, and even though by the circumstances of his life he always had to rely on himself and asked for next to nothing from his family, he never forgot his roots or his far-flung relations. The villages of Eastern or Lower Austria were filled with Haydn's nieces and nephews. Haydn loved to visit them, and over and again he became godfather to their children and helped one or another of them to set up a business or get training in a trade. In his will, Haydn did his very best to remember everybody. It was a sort of last will and testament family reunion. Among Haydn's many legatees were his brothers, his valet, his cook, his housekeeper, and various more distant relatives, including a shoemaker, a blacksmith, a silversmith, two seamstresses, a saddler's widow, and two lace makers. Haydn also left sizable amounts of money to a number of women about whom we know nothing, except that they were most likely at one time or another his lovers. Haydn stopped composing entirely after 1803 and began, sadly, a long physical decline. His symptoms, swollen legs, exhaustion, failing memory, point to a general case of arteriosclerosis, hardening of the arteries. His health declined precipitously after 1805, by which time, at the age of 73, he was an invalid. However, Haydn had the pleasure of knowing that he had not been forgotten, and medals, awards, honors, and proclamations poured into his house on the Kleine Steingasse in Vienna. 
Any visit to Haydn included a ceremonial examination of his awards, and we are told that when he became depressed in his last years, he drew solace from these tangible signs of his success. The last great moment of Haydn's life occurred on March 27, 1808. A performance of The Creation took place in honor of his 76th birthday. It was clear to everyone in Vienna that Haydn was approaching death, so the performance became an almost religious event. Haydn rode to the concert in Prince Esterhazy's own carriage. A large crowd had gathered in front of the performance hall, which was held in check by military guards. Haydn was carried in an armchair into the performance hall, there to be greeted by the nobility and distinguished musicians as well, including Beethoven, Salieri, and Hummel. When Haydn entered the hall, a fanfare was sounded and the audience spontaneously chanted, Long live Haydn! He was seated with the highest aristocracy, next to Princess Esterhazy. When she saw him shiver, she took off her own shawl and put it over his shoulders. And when the ladies around her saw what the princess had done, they followed suit. Haydn was soon covered with some very expensive ladies' clothing. We trust only outerwear. Aside from the ladies' clothing, Haydn was wearing some of his medals and awards, among them a gold medal he had received from the Concert des Amateurs in Paris. The French ambassador, seeing this, said, quote, This medal is not enough. You should receive all the medals that are distributed in the whole of France. Unquote. Poems, written for the occasion in German and Italian, were presented to the composer by his friends. The performance was conducted by Salieri. The concertmaster was the great violin virtuoso Franz Clement. The audience was ready to party. When the chorus intoned the words, Let there be light, and there was light, they went wild, whooping and screaming and clapping. The performance had to be halted for a number of minutes while the audience cheered and wept, all the while looking towards Haydn in his box. It was a glorious night. Neither Bach, Mozart, Beethoven, nor Schubert ever experienced such a valedictory moment, and it stands in high contrast with the tawdry events that would follow Haydn's death 14 months later. Haydn never appeared in public again. He died, quote, blissfully and gently, unquote, shortly after midnight on May 31, 1809. Among the last earthly sounds Haydn heard before he died was the bombardment of Vienna on May 12th and 13th and Vienna's subsequent occupation by Napoleon's army. A bitter pill, we think, for the man who wrote the Austrian national anthem. Haydn's last words were, quote, children, be comforted. I am well, unquote. The funeral. Haydn was buried on June 15, 1809, in the Hundsturm Cemetery on the outskirts of Vienna. In previous posts, we've discussed the Viennese obsession with funerals, and in his will, Haydn had asked for a big one. 
but he didn't get it. The occupying French authorities forbade any large gatherings of people, so bingo nights and big funerals were out. Haydn would eventually get his grand funeral, though not for another 145 years. Unspeakable doings! A few days after Haydn was buried, a nefarious outrage took place, perpetrated by two people, Josef Karl Rosenbaum and Johann Nepomuk Peter. Rosenbaum had been a close personal friend of Haydn's, and Peter was a close friend of Rosenbaum's. The two men had two things in common. One, they both believed Haydn to be the greatest composer who had ever lived. Two, they were both fanatical phrenologists, phrenology or craniology being the contemporary quack science that held that the talent and intellect of an individual could be divined from the shape of his or her skull. Josef Rosenbaum and Johann Peter together decided that Josef Haydn's head could not be permitted to become a buffet table for maggots and worms. So they bribed the gravedigger at the Hundsturm Cemetery, a gent named Jakob de Muth, to open Haydn's grave, hack off Haydn's head, and deliver it to them. Rosenberg recorded it all in his diary. Quote, on Sunday the 4th of June, 1809, we drove to the Hundsturm Cemetery. I got out and received Josef Haydn's invaluable relic from Jakob de Muth. It smelled terrible. Once I had the package in the coach, I had to throw up. The stench was too much for me. The head was already rather green, but still easily recognizable. The impression this sight made on me will stay with me forever." Unquote. <laughs> yeah, no kidding. Johann Nepomuk Peter took over from there. He boiled the skull, scraped off the skin, ripped out the brain, bleached the skull white, and then declared, after having examined it, that Haydn's seat of hearing was extraordinarily advanced. Following this examination, Josef Rosenbaum once again took possession of the skull. He built a black wooden cabinet made to look like a Roman sarcophagus inside of which the skull sat atop a white silk pillow trimmed in black. The whole shebang was installed in a mausoleum he built in his yard, where select visitors were allowed to enter in order to pay homage to the master, or at least the master's skull. This show-and-tell thing went on for 11 years until 1820. That's when the order was given to exhume Haydn's remains from the Hundsturm Cemetery and have them brought to Eisenstadt, where the Esterhazy family, for whom Haydn had worked for 29 years, intended to rebury him with appropriate pomp and honor in their family church. But when the casket was opened up, there was no head. Just Haydn's wig perched atop his hacked-up neck. Oh, can we imagine the look on everyone's face? A Kodak moment. Priceless. For our information, the Hundsturm Cemetery, the location of Haydn's original grave, was closed in 1874. 
the site has been converted into a park appropriately called Haydn Park. Haydn's original gravesite has been preserved. As for the missing head, Prince Paul Anton Esterhazy III, who had ordered the disinterment and reburial, was properly mortified, believing that he was about to become the laughingstock of Central Europe for being the man who lost Haydn's head, he demanded action from the police. Action he got. The perpetrators were quickly identified, though when the police raided Rosenbaum's house, they found nothing. It seems that Rosenbaum's wife, a singer named Therese Gassman, had hidden the skull under her mattress and then lay across the bed, feigning menstrual discomfort. The fuzz kept their distance, and the bed went unexamined. At this point, Prince Esterhazy became desperate. He outright offered Rosenbaum a major chunk of change in return for the skull. The money was good, so the nothing if not cheeky Rosenbaum delivered up a skull. Unfortunately, it wasn't Haydn's, but rather that of a 20-year-old man. When this duplicity was discovered, Rosenbaum handed over yet another skull, this time that of an old man. It wasn't Haydn's skull, but the authorities didn't know that. And so on December 4th, 1820, the skull of heaven knows who was buried with Haydn's remains. And so began Haydn's final road trip. When Rosenbaum died, he willed Haydn's real skull to his accomplice, Johann Peter. When Peter died, it went to his physician, a Dr. Karl Haller. From Haller, the skull was entrusted to a Viennese pathologist named Karl von Rokitansky. Decades later, Rokitansky's sons presented the skull to Vienna's numero uno musical organization, Gesellschaft der Musikfreunde in Wien, the Society of the Friends of Music in Vienna, which, figuratively, sat on the thing until 1954, when Haydn's body and skull were finally reunited 145 years after they were separated. That is when Haydn finally received the big-time, big-fun, big-fuss funeral he had requested in his will. Haydn's body and head today rest together in Eisenstadt, Austria, in a coffin inside a magnificent sarcophagus in the Bergkirche. The substitute skull, which served for so long as Haydn's surrogate, was not removed. So Haydn's coffin now contains two skulls. A most respectful gesture, I think. May Haydn continue to rest in one piece. At Haydn's tomb is a tablet that bears these most appropriate words. Quote, Joseph Haydn, a devout, honest, and peaceful man, an artist in banishing cares, a master in enchanting the heart. Unquote. And so he was. Thank you. To sample and download one or all of my many courses on subjects musical produced by The Great Courses slash The Teaching Company, please visit my website at robertgreenbergmusic.com.